There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout, we're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women because you'll never take back our country with weakness. We are looking ahead to Monday, and there is new reporting about the referrals that could be coming from the January 6th committee in Trump's plot to overturn the election. Also tonight, Stacey Abrams joins me on the recent midterms and how Georgia Republicans are trying to change the voting rules again. Plus, acclaimed filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi joins me with a preview of her new documentary, a unique look at the most powerful woman in America, her mom. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Elon Musk's Thursday night massacre. One of the many journalists newly suspended from Twitter will be here with me tonight. We begin tonight with breaking news on the January 6th committee and multiple reports that the committee is eyeing criminal referrals for twice impeached, disgraced former President Donald Trump. While NBC News reports that the committee has yet to make a final decision, we do know that it's actively considering recommending charges for insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, and conspiracy. It all comes down to the final public hearing held by the committee on Monday, where the committee will vote to adopt its final report and vote on referrals. The public will see the highly anticipated report two days after that. It has been quite the saga, January 6th, from the viral spectacle to a full-blown constitutional crisis. The assault on our democracy didn't end that day. It expanded, infecting everything from social media to Congress itself, as Republicans and the MAGA movement defended the man at the center of it all. And yet, it also exposed the guardrails that exist to protect our democracy. The bipartisan committee that secured testimony mainly from Trump's own former staffers and Republican allies, the millions of Americans who watched on television or online, the elected officials who denounced Trump and the handful of Republicans like Liz Cheney who stood up to their party. Being on the committee proved to be a political liability. Congresswoman Cheney and Elaine Luria, another January 6th member, lost their seats. Members Stephanie Murphy and Adam Kinzinger didn't seek re-election. You have to wonder if they saw the writing on the wall. Justice can come slowly or not at all, as has been the case for Teflon Don his entire life. But that might change come Monday. And for committee member Kinzinger, who's leaving Congress next month, it was all worth it. In his farewell speech this week, he made sure to call out what is possibly the greater threat, those in Congress who are plotting to destroy democracy from within. Had I known that standing up for truth would cost me my job, friendships, and even my personal security, I would, without hesitation, do it all over again. I can rest easy at night, knowing that I fulfilled my oath to the office. I know many in this institution cannot do the same. Unfortunately, we now live in a world where lies trump truth, where democracy is being challenged by authoritarianism. 
If we, America's elected leaders, do not search within ourselves for a way out, I fear that this great experiment will fall into the ash heap of history. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Glenn Kirshner, MSNBC legal analyst and former federal prosecutor. And Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian. I'm going to start with you, Hugo. Uh, what can you tell us? Because there is some reporting that's out there that says that the committee members have made a decision. NBC News has not confirmed that. What are you hearing? Yeah, look, we've reported uh, today that the select committee is considering uh, several options against Trump, principally the obstruction of an official proceeding uh, statute and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Now, you know, the select committee has been hearing from the subcommittee, uh, especially established to consider the issue of referrals for several days now. Like, you know, they met on Sunday. They met during this week around votes. And even last night, they were still discussing it. And so I think this kind of reflects a a, a a bit of progress in what the committee is trying to do before the Monday uh, public business meeting next week, where they're going to vote on these referrals. Uh, and I think I should just mention that these are really specific uh, charges that they are looking at. They took a renewed look at the evidence and they said, you know, what is an actual crime here? And they actually settled on multiple things. And for instance, with the obstruction of an official proceeding, they looked at this and said, you know what? Even attempting to obstruct the congressional certification on January 6th is illegal. And we, the subcommittee, believe that we should make a criminal referral against Donald Trump. And it's interesting, and I'm going to go to you first on this, Glenn, because, you know, Judge Carter, a previous judge, said that he looked at what John Eastman did and said it was likely that he had committed, along with Donald Trump, uh, potential felonies regarding trying to interfere with Congress. So just to go through just a little bit to remind folks and refresh folks' memory, here is Donald Trump actually praising Eastman, who spoke on the Olympics. Eastman did, saying, we know there was fraud, traditional fraud that occurred. We know dead people voted. We are all demanding that Vice President Pence this afternoon at one o'clock let the legislatures of the state look at this so that he can get to the bottom of it, yada, 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 basically demanding that Mike Pence overturn the election. And here's Trump's praise of him after that. John is one of the most brilliant lawyers in the country. And he looked at this and he said, what an absolute disgrace that this could be happening to our Constitution. And he looked at Mike Pence and I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. After that, John Eastman pleaded the fifth a bunch of times when he testified before the committee. So, Glenn, you know, do, do you see legal jeopardy for Eastman in this? And in theory, if he's in jeopardy, is Trump in jeopardy, too? Yeah, they're both in jeopardy, Joy. And I'm so glad you brought up the ruling by federal uh, district court judge out in California, David Carter, because it kind of feels like we are in this upside down, bizarro criminal justice world, because we have two co-equal branches of government that, based on the evidence, have reached conclusions that Donald Trump and others committed crimes against the United States, federal felonies. We have Judge David Carter in California ruling after an evidentiary hearing that by a preponderance of the evidence, and that's a really important evidentiary standard, by a preponderance of the evidence, um, uh, John Eastman, together with Donald Trump, committed two federal felonies 
obstruction of an official proceeding trying to stop the certification of Joe Biden's win and a conspiracy to commit offenses against and defraud the United States. And it sounds like, based on Hugo's reporting, those are precisely two of the crimes that Congress has also concluded there's enough evidence to make a criminal referral on. When in the world do we have the judiciary and the legislative branch taking the lead on amassing evidence and reaching conclusions that these men should be prosecuted with the executive branch, the Department of Justice, the FBI, lagging behind. I mean, usually it is the Department of Justice that takes the lead, announcing through its indictments that crimes have been committed. This is not the way law enforcement ordinarily plays out. Yeah, it, it is. It is odd. And Charles Coleman, you know, uh, Mr. Hirshhorn, I believe it's John Hirshhorn, uh, his, whatever his first name is, Hirshhorn. Um, this is what he testified to um, regarding what he said to John Eastman after he learned of what Eastman was up to. And he, he, Hirshman, this is what Mr. Hirschman said regarding Eastman. Take a listen. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right. I said, I. Said I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. Eventually he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And so Hirschman is saying that to Eastman, Charles, because he understood that what he was saying was criminal. So he's saying, stop saying that and say things that are legal. And he wants him to say orderly transition of power. But Eastman has, since the year 2000, had this theory that state legislatures could overturn the will of the people and appoint their own electors. This is something that goes back to the year 2000, when he tried to pull that same game in Florida. So the theory of the case, Charles, would be that because Eastman had the plan, he had the memo that said, here's how you do it. Here's how you undo it. And he somehow convinced Trump that this could be done. That was the impetus for Trump to commit this crime. Is that the way that you'd be looking at it as a prosecutor? That's absolutely right, Joy, and I'm glad you brought up Eastman's history with respect to this theory. He has been pushing this literally for over two decades at this point, going back to the Al, v. Al Gore v. George Bush issue in Florida. And I think everything that Glenn and Hugo have said just underscores how absolutely mind-blowing where we are is. Think about this. We are on the precipice of a former president of the United States of America getting a criminal referral from Congress to the DOJ to prosecute him for trying to overturn an election. I know we've said it so many different times, but when you really think about how absolutely mind-blowing that is, it's truly absurd. The question has been so far, are we going to be able to connect Donald Trump to the actual activity that took place? Are we going to be able to connect Donald Trump to this state elector scheme that took place? And with respect to John Eastman as the linchpin and that memo that you described, that's exactly how they intend to do it as prosecutors if this referral takes place, which I expect it likely will. And, and the referrals could be for more than one person. Let's just be clear. We, 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 the, the reporting is that it potentially could be against the former president. But let me just read to you, um, Hugo. This is what the criminal code says about rebellion and insurrection. The U.S. criminal code says whoever incites, sets foot, assists or engaged in any rebellion or insurrection against authority of the United States uh, or gives aid or comfort thereto shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than 10 years or both shall be incapable. This is the important part of holding any office under the United States. Um, that's also in the 14th Amendment. And 
so the question comes, is in your reporting the committee considering referrals against anyone else uh, besides Donald Trump? Because this, in theory, could apply to some members of Congress. And that becomes a political uh, sticky potential situation if they are putting referrals forward on other members. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point with that statute. And that's, you know, that's the element about not being able to hold office again. And right. the reason why the committee has been examining this is because while well, with Trump, you know, they really find him a danger to democracy and they don't think he should be eligible to be uh, president ever again. And so they have been discussing this in, in kind of recent days. And I should also mention they've also been discussing seditious conspiracy just to give you a, a sense of really what they're looking at and how seriously they consider what Trump did in the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th itself. But yeah, look, they're looking at referrals for a number of people, both criminal and civil. You know, they're looking at criminal referrals for Trump, potentially other allies around him, but also civil uh, re referrals. People like, you know, the House Republicans who defied subpoenas, they might get referred to the House Ethics Committee. But I think you raise a really good point in that, you know, we might even see criminal referrals for House members because it is true that that disqualification statute is so important. And the committee has been looking at that for so long and really trying to figure out if this is something that they should bring. And we saw, Glenn, an attempt to do that to 14th Amendment Marjorie Taylor Greene. It did not work. Uh, they also saw it attempted against Madison Cawthorn. So it's, it's really difficult to do it. It's like impeaching someone and getting a conviction. But is the is this is not a, a just a referral doesn't mean they're prosecuting. Them. They don't have the power to do that. But would such a referral at least have sort of value, even if they can't get get it all the way to closure? It will have value. You know, the Department of Justice prides itself on exercising independent prosecutorial discretion, but they can't turn a blind eye to a co-equal branch of government that has done such an exhaustive investigation when they pass all of that evidence over to DOJ and they recommend criminal investigations and prosecutions. And here's the thing. It's great that they're talking about obstructing official proceedings. That's a 20-year offense. It's great that they're talking about conspiracy to commit offenses against the United States. That's a five-year offense. But the important one, Joy, is the one you mentioned, insurrection. Why? Because the available sentence, if you're convicted of insurrection, unlike those other charges, is that you shall be prohibited from holding office under the United States. That, quite frankly, is the one I'm rooting for. And last, a word to you, Charles Coleman. What if these referrals result in no prosecutions out of the Department of Justice? What message would that send? Well, I think we have to think about what that says to the average American. We have to think about everything that we've learned throughout the course of the January 6th committee's research and investigation and everything that's been put plainly in front of the public. When you do not hold someone accountable, when you do not hold someone responsible, you are sending a very dangerous message that power and privilege will shield you from the law and that America's two-tier justice system is very much so in place, alive and well. And that is not the message that you want to send amidst a political climate such as this. So in my, yeah. in my opinion, that would be the absolute worst case scenario. And the Department of Justice is signaling that they do want to show that they are sensitive to these two-tier justice systems, uh, this ruling that they should start treating crack cocaine and, uh, uh, and, and cocaine the same uh, in the criminal justice system. So it seems like that's where they kind of want to go, make it more equal. We shall see. Uh, Charles Coleman, Glenn Kirshner, Hugo Lowell, thank you all. Up next on The Readout, Stacey Abrams is here. The gubernatorial nominee and voting rights champion has a new book. And of course, we are going to talk Georgia politics. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While we await the final report from the January 6th committee on Donald Trump's failed coup attempt, we can't overlook that there's also been a quieter coup, the less transparent, gradual, long game that doesn't always get the cameras or congressional hearings. That is the Republican Party's attempts to seize power by stealing your vote. They did this long before the insurrection in states like Georgia, where Governor Brian Kemp, surrounded solely by white men, signed the state's voter suppression law under a painting of a plantation where black Americans were once enslaved. If the new old South and the governor's intentions could be expressed in a photo, well, there you have it. Democrats and voting rights activists branded Georgia's new election law Jim Crow 2.0. The law cut in half the time allowed between a general election and a runoff. It reduced early voting locations and voting hours and placed limits on voting by mail. It even made it against the law to approach a voter standing in line with food or water. Despite all of this voter suppression, the state's first black senator, Raphael Warnock, has won two elections and two Georgia runoffs, victories harnessed by activists like Stacey Abrams, Latasha Brown, and the same black women who helped flip the state blue two years ago. The runoff elections have racist roots. Georgia and Louisiana are the only states that use runoffs for general elections. As the Washington Post points out, Georgia's system was created in 1964 at the urging of Denmark Groover, a vocal segregationist determined to suppress black political representation. While runoff elections had existed for decades in southern primaries, Georgia's enthusiastic adoption of two-round voting came as a way of ensuring a conservative white candidate won an election, said Ashton Ellett, a political historian and activist at the University of Georgia. A runoff makes it harder for folks who have fewer resources to vote. And that system worked in the Republicans' favor for decades. That is, until the last two elections, where it was the Democratic candidates who won. So perhaps it should come as no surprise to anyone that all of a sudden, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State is now calling for an end to the use of runoff elections, claiming it puts a strain on election workers. Hmm. Joining me now is Stacey Abrams, founding, founder of Fair Fight, former Democratic nominee for Georgia governor and author of the new children's book, Stacey's Remarkable Books. I cannot wait to talk about that. We're going to do that in a second. But I do want to play for you and welcome you back to the show uh, and play for you what Senator Warnock said in his victory speech um, after the second time he won a runoff. Just because people endured long lines that wrapped around buildings some blocks long, just because they endured the rain and the cold and all kinds of tricks in order to vote, 
doesn't mean that voter suppression does not exist. It simply means that you, the people, have decided that your voices will not be silenced. And Stacey, I feel like Georgia has been sort of, you know, zone central for this game of keep away that people like Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp, when they when he was secretary of state, use to keep making it. OK, you vote this way. Now we're going to make that illegal. Then you vote that way, we're going to make that illegal. OK, you vote that way. We're going to make that illegal. And they just keep trying to move the ball. And then because people surmount all of the odds, they say, oh, there's no voter suppression. Um, what do you make of this ability to gaslight the public that these long lines, which I'm going to show you now, mean, oh, no, everyone can vote? It, it's what I've been saying for the last four years and what I will continue to say until we have a voting rights law that actually protects the voters of America. And that is that voter suppression is baked into the DNA of our election system. But so is the persistence that we see from voters who are willing to fight against that very and the ignominy. We see voters who are turning out and who are pushing forward despite the obstacles and the false equivalence that says that what happened on January 6th and the conversation about voter suppression or of a piece is completely absurd. We know that what happened on January 6th was about denying the voices of the people. But the fight for voters against voter suppression is about lifting up those voices and giving them primacy because in a democracy, your ability to participate should not be impeded. And we should take that as a first principle. And I'm proud of the work that we continue to do to keep that front and center in this conversation. And to your point about January 6th, I mean, Jack Smith, the special counsel, is actually subpoenaing records and wants to talk to the Brad Raffensperger's of the world and Brian Kemp's. This is still happening, right? The insurrection that happened, this, the, the more open insurrection that happened, is now the subject of both a state and a federal investigation. Uh, what do you make of the fact that Georgia became the center of the attempt to steal the election and these elected officials in your state are still on the hook to discuss it with special counsel and also with Fonnie Willis in, in the state of Georgia? Georgia. I'm glad that Georgia continues to be ground zero for the conversation about protecting democracy. But I think we have to widen the aperture of our lens. We have to pay attention not only to what's continuing with that, with that investigation, but we have to look at what's in front of the Supreme Court. The Merrill case, which is being argued, would eliminate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That means that in Georgia, in Texas, in Florida, majority-minority districts could be eliminated through midterm redistricting. We have to look at the Moore decision, which would give state legislators and the governors Im Im basically the imprimatur to change federal election laws without judicial review at the state level. And when you read these things together, we have got to move our eyes beyond the spectacle that has been Donald Trump to the wider attack on our democracy and our ability to participate in elections. Every one of those votes matter. Every one of those voices matter. And every one of those elections matter. Well, I have to tell you, sister, you have been at this since 2014. When I first met you, you are sort of the Moses uh, of getting Georgians to be able to vote. Uh, you made it to the mountaintop and that didn't get to your goal of becoming governor. But you are owed a huge debt of gratitude for everything that you have done to make it possible for millions, tens of millions of people to vote in this country. So I'm giving you your flowers right here while you're here in front of me. And, but I want to go on and talk about this book. You've written a children's book. The cover is beautiful. So tell me about this book uh, and the little girl in it who's name happens to be Stacy. <laughs> 
Well, it is a, a companion to Stacy's Extraordinary Words, uh, which is my first picture book. This one is about a story uh, that actually happened. It was about my friend Julie Doe, who hopefully is watching this somewhere. She and her family, they were refugees from Vietnam in Mississippi in the 1970s. And she and I became friends. She was struggling to read English. I was struggling to, you know, talk to other kids because I was a little reserved and awkward. And it's about how we connected. But it's also a celebration of the differences, of the diversity in our society, about why children should be our lodestars for how we learn together and grow together. And it's also an homage to my parents, my mom, who's a librarian, and my dad, who struggled to learn to read because he had undiagnosed dyslexia, but both of whom taught me to love reading, love stories, and love words. And so this is my, my love letter to my parents and to my friend, Julie Doe. I, I can't wait to read it. And if, if I couldn't love you more, your mom being a librarian seals the deal because, you know, I love a librarian. So big ups to your wonderful parents. Stacey Abrams, big ups to you, my sister. And everybody check out the book. Uh, I can't wait to have a copy and give it as gifts. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. All right. And up next, Alexandra Pelosi spent a lifetime filming her mom's remarkable achievements. And she joins me next to tell us more about her stirring new documentary, Pelosi in the House. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. disturbing report that he said we expect to get us pass on this. There are no passes, especially on something as central to who we are as Democrats. No, but I mean this is this is it's this is the defining moment for the Democrats. This is why we elect Democrats. This is why we are here. And we can't just feel the taking end of it. But it's just the definition of saying a not on this team has to be some of a giving, especially on a vote like this. I'm going to take a bit more Okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a clip from a new documentary on Speaker of, of Speaker Nancy Pelosi doing what she utterly excels at, locking up votes, in this case, for the Affordable Care Act, which, as President Obama said this week, probably wouldn't be law if it wasn't for her tenacity. The documentary, HBO's Pelosi in the House, shot by Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, is a snapshot of her storied career that began in 1987, when she ran for Congress with the slogan, a voice that will be heard, leading to her having the largest voice in the room as the only female speaker of the House, all while being a super mom and grandma. Pelosi is so respected that she elicited this encomium from former Republican Speaker John Boehner this week. 
Madam Speaker, you and I have uh, disagreed uh, politically on many things over the years, but we were never disagreeable to each other. And, Madam Speaker, I have to say, my girls told me, tell the Speaker how much we admire her. I'm joined now by Nancy Pelosi's daughter, filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi. And Alexandra, it's good to see you. I was in the room uh, in the Capitol Rotunda, I think you called it, um, when that ceremony took place. You could feel the emotion. It was you could hear a pin drop when uh, John Boehner gave that wonderful tribute to your mom. Uh, and, you know, the, the points that he made about her just skill at wielding power, um, I think was also belied by the fact that she told her own story and said when, when she came, when she became speaker, it was the first time she ever walked in the speaker's office. She'd never been in there. Talk about her ability to fearlessly wield power. Well, the reason I made this film is because for decades, I've been just behind my mother, walking around, following her, filming all the vote counting. Just decades of counting votes. <laughs> Seems like <laughs> all she did for 20 years was just count votes. And I thought I made this film as like a schoolhouse rock to teach people about what a speaker is, as you said, she'd never been into the speaker's office until she became speaker herself. And so the point of this film is to show people how a bill becomes a law, because most people don't even know what the Speaker of the House does all day. So this film is just trying to show you what, what the speaker is and how you pass a bill. So we're, and we're seeing uh, some great pictures of Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi, a uh, Baltimore girl who winds up uh, representing San Francisco. Um, you can see the little kid in the background of that clip, which, you know, and I saw some other interviews, you know, I think when you were on with Nicole, with my uh, good friend Nicole Wall, saying she's doing all this while also being grandma and showing up to all the school dances and, you know, all of the things for the family. So she's doing it all, you know, while balancing an actual normal life. Yes, I weave my son in the film from the age of birth through 16 when he was in the Capitol on January 6th, because I'm trying to show the passage of time of how she endured so many presidents. Think of it as that she served, you know, four terms with one Republican president and then four terms with another president. No, that's not true. She was with Obama. So how does that work? I don't know. You do the math. <laughs> but you get the point is that she's been around forever. <laughs> I'm a right brain person. I, math is not really my daily work. But let's do um, the, 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 the other thing that Speaker Boehner, uh, former Speaker Boehner talked about was this moment when democracy was in the balance and the poise uh, that your mom, that the speaker showed. Um, this is a great clip from your documentary. And this is cut one from my, my uh, director. It doesn't seem to be safe. We've gotten a very bad report about the conditions of over the um, house floor with defecation and all that kind of thing. Okay, and that caused that. Okay, I worry about you being in that capital room. Don't let anybody know where you are. Match the earrings, match the mask, ate the Slim Jim, and saved democracy. Not bad. <laughs> Talk about your mom's, like, poise in the face of literal danger as her staff, you know, she talked about her staff having to hide under tables and the fear that Mike Pence was even afraid to get in the car that day, uh, her poise that day. Where does that come from? Oh, I don't know where it comes from. It's in her DNA. It's just who she is. Things are never as good as they seem and things are never as bad as they seem. Every day she just wake up, put those heels on and march right into the Capitol and get it done. That's just who she is.
Yeah. And put those heels on is true. I have had to try to interview her while I was struggling in heels and she was running in them. And so I don't know how she does that. Uh, let's play another clip. This is your mom. Uh, and you're talking about her after she says she can smell success. Take a look. You're a tough nut to crack. You know that? <laughs> There's no cracking you, huh? Mm. Well, then, if that's what you want to do, crack your mom. <laughs> yes, I do. I want to crack you. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I think did uh, crack your mom just a little bit was what happened um, with 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 your dad. Um, uh, and, and it was wonderful to see Paul Pelosi back up up on his feet uh, with his dapper hat on at the portrait unveiling. Um, that was a really there he is. Uh, that was a really tough moment for her. You really saw the emotion when she talked about him. Uh, and it was great to see them together. Talk about that relationship. Well, there aren't many men that you would sign up for this kind of a life. You know, he's been uh, Mr. Pelosi now for 35 <laughs> years. When, 35 years ago, when she went to Congress, I don't think that he knew what he was getting himself into. But he's been there. If you see throughout the film, he's always there. This is this, you know, loyal by her side, kind of a man. And in the end, he's the one that paid the ultimate price because he's the one that ended up in the ICU for all the threats against her. So it's really sort of tragic that he is the one that paid the ultimate price, not the ultimate, yeah. but the worst of the family, you know, for everything that she does. So that's sort of the hardest yeah. part for us right now as a family is just trying to make peace with the fact that how this, this poor guy ended up the target and all of this. Well, uh, it's a, we can't, I can't wait to watch the documentary. The clips are absolutely amazing, uh, historic, uh, particularly when it comes to the January 6th stuff. But seeing Vice President Harris on one side of the president and Speaker Pelosi on the other side, I think every little girl, really every little boy and girl in the country, in the world, um, really learned a great lesson about the power of women. Uh, wonderful. Alexandra Pelosi, congrats and thank you very much. The documentary thank Pelosi in the me. House. Cheers. Uh, the documentary Pelosi in the House is available on HBO and on HBO Max. And before we go to break, an update on Brittany Griner. She posted this photo on Instagram today of her hugging her wife, Sherelle, along with her first public statement since returning home from detention in Russia. Griner said it feels good to be home. She thanked President Biden for securing her freedom and vowed to play in the upcoming WNBA season. Huh. And up next... The Thursday Night Massacre, Elon Musk suspends 10 journalists who've been covering his nefarious exploits, demonstrating once and for all how his twisted ideas of free speech really work. One of those journalists joins me next. Somehow, Elon Musk managed to turn Twitter into an even bigger dumpster fire overnight by suspending, without warning, the accounts of several journalists from CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other outlets, many of whom cover the platform or Musk himself. The self-proclaimed free speech absolutist told a group of journalists in a Twitter spaces chat that those reporters were doxing him, violating the rule he made just a few days ago banning private jet trackers, which, mind you, is public information. And when the journalists on that call challenged that claim, Musk left abruptly and then proceeded to shut down the Twitter spaces feature altogether. Banning journalists is a bad move on its own, but it's made even worse by the fact that in the months since his takeover of Twitter, Musk has reinstated the accounts of thousands of users who have spread far-right conspiracies, as well as noted white nationalists, anti-Semites, people who were spreading COVID misinformation, and of course, the former president, who was kicked off the site for fomenting a violent insurrection in an attempt to overturn an election. Those people got their accounts back. 
But the reporters, whose job it is to hold people like Musk to account, or who have shared information about private plane locations, which I can't stress enough, is publicly available to anyone, they get the boot. Joining me now is Matt Bender, reporter from Mashable, and one of the reporters whose account was banned. And Victor Shee, co-host of the iGen Politics podcast and host of the podcast On the Move. Um, let's start with you, Matt Bender. Welcome to the show. Did Thanks you? For me. Sure. I, 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 you know, I have my own theory about why people were banned, and I'm wondering if at any point you retweeted the clip of um, Elon Musk being booed, because it it seems like that might be part of the issue that Aaron Rupar faced, is that he was making fun of him. That seems to me the more Occam's razor answer for why his site was, he was banned. But what do you think was behind your banning? Right. I mean, it's unclear right now exactly what was behind the banning. Um, you know, Twitter suspended my account shortly after I simply shared that LAPD statement from, uh, you know, CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan tweeted it out first. Basically, the LAPD says Elon Musk claims that, you know, he was accosted, his family was accosted by someone who he thinks was tracking his family via that Elon's jet, jet tracking account. Um, the LAPD says that, you know, they never heard from Musk. They reached out to him. He hasn't gotten back to them. Them, and there's no, you know, police report on record. There's no incident filed. Um, so, you know, Donnie O'Sullivan from CNN was shortly uh, suspended after he uh, uh, shared that statement. I simply screenshotted that statement and put it out myself, uh, letting people know that Donnie got suspended right after sharing it. And then I was suspended shortly after too. Uh, Elon Musk is claiming that it's because we doxed, we we shared doxed, uh, you know, private location information on the website and on Twitter. But I, I never did that. And, and I, it doesn't seem that anyone ever did it. Right. And so, Victor, you know, you use the platform. I saw that you promoted your appearance uh, on this show on the platform. Some people are still sticking with it. But at this point, I mean, I, I learned about I tried to pull myself off of it. I think it's too toxic. But, you know, thank God for the great Ben Collins, who tweeted out that all of these folks were suspended. That's how I saw that it happened. He's one of the best of the business. We love him. Um, but at this point, is Twitter, in your mind, worth using? You know, I, I think for all its toxicity, and you, you said that so eloquently, I think for all its toxicity that the platform does provide, I think there are some good uses, especially for journalists and especially for, I think, academics. It provides a great resource for them. I think it disseminates information in a great way. And kind of going to what Matt said, I think it's a really confusing decision by Elon Musk to do this, because I think at the end of the day, this is someone who I believe is deeply narcissistic. And it doesn't take a psychologist to, I think, uh, see that, you know, his patterns and the behavior and the actions that he's taken shows that anything that runs against his kind of worldview or his perception of the world is immediately deemed as, you know, you're like not credible and he, he kicks them off of the platform. So I think there's a lot of this scary stuff happening with Elon Musk. He's something who is erratic. There really is no rationalization for this because at the end of the day, I think it's his self-image that matters to him most. And he's willing to, I think, burn the platform to the ground to see that happen. And so I think it's really concerning. I think a lot of people for good reason are getting off the platform because um, of what Elon Musk is doing. But at the end of the day, for myself and I know for many others, I I'm staying because, you know, this is someone who tries to promote chaos and division. And I feel like at the end of the day, if I do cost-benefit analysis, hopefully my staying on can and other people staying on can, can push back against what he's trying to do to the platform. 
You know, Matt, I mean, he's two clicks away from having trading cards. Let's just be clear. Right. I mean, he's just Cybertron. Um, but, but I mean, at the same time, um, he's also trying to block people from promoting where they're going to. The, the guy who runs Mastodon got his account blanked as well or kicked off as well because he's and anyone who's promoting the links to their Mastodon or post account is at risk of being thrown off as well. At this point, you know, this is not just. He doesn't own this by himself. The Saudis have a big chunk of it as well. The misinformation that's there, the COVID misinformation that's there, this is dangerous stuff. It, I don't know if this is something you were covering at long length, but in your mind, what is the risk now to the value of the journalism on the platform if the risk is, is if he gets mad at you or he feels like you were teasing and were mean to him, you lose your access? Right. That's sort of the issue here. Like, you know, he via these Twitter files that he's been he's been releasing via, you know, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss has been highly critical of the old Twitter uh, regime's way of running things. And that way, via these documents is basically it seems like back and forth debate between multiple uh, Twitter employees about how to roll out specific policy, how to actually deal out punishments. You sometimes even saw Twitter employees push back against punishing certain users. Um, there was seems like some sort of healthy debate in the background there. Now it seems like uh, strictly things are being run by uh, what Elon Musk feels like at the moment. Um, he had tweeted out just last month that while he wasn't a fan of the Elon's jet account that tracked his private jet, Via, via his uh, you know free speech beliefs, he was going to let it stay on the platform. Then all of a sudden, on Wednesday, he bans the account, and then hours later, Twitter announces this new policy about not being able to tweet out or you know share locate a uh, private location based information. Um, basically, saying that Elon's jet is suspended because they broke a Twitter policy that didn't yet exist, not even giving them a chance to come back on and abide by the new policy. And then all these journalists get suspended via reporting on Elon's jet. Uh, just so happens that, you know, if this was some sort of mass purge, I, I, which, which I thought it was going to be at first, I could say, OK, maybe it was an algorithm gone wild. But when it's eight or what was it, 10 specific journalists who have been highly critical of Musk, I mean, it's pretty clear that these were all handpicked by someone inside Twitter. Yeah, Keith Olbermann, uh, Keith Olbermann, but also journalists from CNN and uh, Mashable and The Washington Post. I think it's pretty clear it's a purge. And again, I go back to I think it's because he thinks people are making fun of him and being mean to him. It, I, I feel like you. There we go. There's the there's the list. Steve Herman, Michael Lee, Matt Bender, you're, you're on that list as well. Um, Aaron Rupar, who I'm just going to follow him wherever he goes, whatever news site he goes to. Victor Xi, it feels like you could take like the Spider-Man, the two Spider-Man's meme and just like put two Mussolini's. Because at this point, you've got Donald Trump doing the playing card apparently copying something that the other Mussolini uh, in Florida, Florida's governor, uh, did first. Ron DeSantis did like baseball cards of himself. So he did these cards. You, you sort of have all of these figures who all seem to be radicalized in the same way. Um, and they're all kind of either fighting each other or competing to be the most powerful Mussolini. And I wonder what you, just as a young person, young guy that's out there trying to sort of work in this space politically, make of this chaos on the right. 
It's really beyond parody, I think. And, it, and it's sad that we have a Republican Party that seems to have no policy basis and that seems to just support someone like Donald Trump. But, but like you said, the, the similarities between Elon Musk and Donald Trump, are, I think, are really apparent. They both, I think, are grifters. They both only care about their self-image. And with Donald Trump's major announcement, which I think turned out to be a pretty um, sad and, and pathetic one, was that you know he would be releasing these you know, trading cards, these digital, digital trading cards. So I think it's really um, embarrassing for Trump to be doing this. I think for the Republican Party, they think a lot of voters, I think, are dumber or less smart than they think. I think at the end of the day, for a lot of young people, especially who I talked to, and we saw this in the midterm elections just a few weeks ago, uh, we are rejecting this type of extremism and this type of uh, you know, rhetoric. And so I think at the end of the day, um, for Trump being Elon Musk, a lot of people can see right through it. They're all the same, though. I mean, DeSantis is no different. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene calling her group the five families. Has she ever seen The Godfather? They all get murked at the end of the, of, of the series. What are you talking about? The five families don't turn out well, but she thinks that's a good reference. I don't see much difference, dimes worth of difference between any of them. Uh, Matt and Victor are going to stick around because they're going to play Who Won the Week next. Don't miss that. We'll be right back. Well, it's Friday, which means it's time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes. Who Won the Week? Back with me, Matt Bender and Victor Shee. Matt Bender, Who Won the Week? Journalists, Elon Musk put out two polls about bringing back those suspended journalists and his preferred <laughs> choices are losing both of them. I mean, whether he actually listens to the poll, we don't know, yeah. but Twitter's users are sending Musk a clear message. They want those journalists back on the platform. And then he's a loser, Victor Xi, who won the week. <laughs> I have to say, all of the interracial and same-sex couples out there, I had the privilege of attending the White House signing ceremony for the Respect for Marriage Act. I think for millions of people who are in interracial and same-sex marriages, they hopefully can find a little bit of comfort and relief in this signing. Um, and so I have to say, they won the week for me. Including the First Lady, but I don't know about Clarence. We'll see if we're, we're going to let him win the week as well. All right, my choice for who won the week is Dr. Claudine Gay. She's the new president of Harvard. She's black. She's a woman. She's going to ruin Tuckum's day. Matt Bender and Victor Shee, thank you. You all won the week for being here. That is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.